0: If you have a Bible this morning, let's open up to John 16, We'll be in the New Testament as we continue this gospel account as we've just been going through it verse by verse, and we'll continue to go through it verse by verse. We're finishing up chapter 16 this morning, and so uh, remember in the, the way the Bible works, the Old Testament says someone's coming, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel accounts that we're in right now say someone's here right now, and the whole rest of the New Testament says someone's coming again. And so who is that someone? It is the promised Redeemer, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we are reading this morning about the person and work and the life and the death and ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ from the Gospel of John. And so have that open there in front of you, John chapter 16. We'll start in verse 16. But in classic Latham faction, I'll start with a little bit of a story before we read our text. And I want you to just take a moment and I want you to put yourself in the shoes of an allied soldier During the during December of nineteen forty-four. And for five long years as you've been there, World War II has just raged. And you can probably quickly, as you're there, imagine yourself in the trenches, you can probably quickly and easily make a long list of all the friends that you've lost along the way. The countries that you've been fighting in for these last few years, they basically all end up looking exactly the same. They're war-torn. They're bombed out, they're full of like wasted buildings and they're all muddy wastelands due to this relentless advance of troops and tanks and trucks and just the, the reality of war. Basically, you, you kind of just can't tell which country you're in anymore because they all look the same. And when you, you, you're there and you're thinking about it and you're looking around and you feel the weight of that, you, you start asking the question, will this war ever end Will I ever be able to see home ever again? Is all of this bloodshed really worth it? Will I ever be able to see my mom and my dad or my girlfriend or whoever it is? Will I ever be able to walk those streets? Will even my own hometown ever look the same ever again? And in short, as you start asking those questions and you survey the landscape around you, it's easy to not lose heart. And you think, when when will this ever stop But then, as you, again, are still in the shoes of this World War II soldier, then that Allied soldier, imagine you get some news in January of the next year. So it's December now, and just a couple of weeks later. Let's say you you get some news in January of 1945 that the Allied troops have finally broken through the German defenses, and your opponents are slowly but surely starting to retreat. And, and the allies are starting to advance. And when you think about that, it doesn't really change the landscape in front of you. You hear news from, this is happening over here. It doesn't really change the landscape there in front of you. But for the first time in years, it finally feels like this endless conflict might actually have an end date. This might actually come to an end. And then a strange thing starts happening in your heart. You start to have hope. You start to have hope. And as you stand in the shoes of this allied soldier this morning, it's not too hard to import those feelings into our current day, is it? We ask questions like Will this virus ever end? Like, will it ever end? Will my health ever be restored if you're sick? Will this relationship ever be restored? Why does my life feel like just a constant struggle? Will my circumstances in this life ever change? Will it ever get easier? It's easy to to just put yourself in the shoes of this soldier because we've all struggled with these feelings and we've all begun to lose heart at some point. We've all been there before. We've all struggled with that. We can even begin to lose heart spiritually. You think over the, the course of time and you start asking the questions: does God really hear my prayers? I can't see Jesus. Is he even real? He's promised to come back and to make all the sad things untrue. But is that just a fairy tale? Because all it seems like day in and day out, all I see is just sad things. I see suffering and hardship and I feel it in my own heart. And it's easy to just kind of start losing heart spiritually. And we look around and it seems like the enemies of God keep advancing and the church is losing ground. And we ask it like, God, don't you see what's going on? Don't you even see what's going on? And we hear the promises of God, but we often get confused because those promises don't line up with the landscape we see around us. Sinclair Ferguson said a really helpful quote that he wrote in his little book about the upper room discourse, and he said, sometimes confusion is a necessary step towards clarity. Sometimes confusion is a necessary step towards clarity. We're going to see that in our passage this morning. Because remember, Jesus has told his disciples that he's going away, They get really confused, obviously, and they begin to lose heart. But in the midst of their confusion, Jesus offers real hope. And what once was confusion actually ends up being clarity. He gives them clarity in the end. And as we'll see this morning, his words to them in the upper room are still massively, massively important for us today. Would you like to hear these massively important words this morning? I hope so. With that in our minds, let's go to the text. We'll start in verse 16 and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word from John 16. "'A little while, and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me.'" So some of his disciples said to one another, "'What is this uh, that he says to us, a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father?' So they were saying, "'What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about.'" And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, "'Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, "'A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me?' "'Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. "'You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. "'When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. "'But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish "'for joy that a human being has been born into the world.'" So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and you have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together this morning and ask the Lord's help. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that every bit of it's true. And thank you for passages like this that remind us, O Lord, of your grace and your mercy and your sovereignty. And Father, we pray that you, uh, by your spirit, would take these words and apply them to our lives and our hearts. Help us to see more of you and help us to receive your word by faith. We ask and pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Okay, so I want you to go back and return to that scene from World War II for a moment. So again, put yourself back in that guy's shoes just for a moment. And the, the battle that you would have heard about in January was the Ardan Offensive, also known as the Battle of the Bulge. And hundreds of thousands of soldiers lost their lives in that month-long battle that was kind of from December into January of 1944 into 1945. But what that battle did was it marked the beginning of the end for the Nazis, but the Allies didn't know it at the time. They didn't know the, just the importance of that particular battle. Major General Robert Urquhart, commander of 1st British Airborne Division, said about that battle, he said, the losses were heavy, but all ranks would willingly undertake another operation under similar conditions. We have no regrets. Could you imagine saying that in the midst of such tremendous loss of life and suffering? He said, we would gladly do it all over again. Why would he say that? Because after seeing just how crucial that battle was to the overall war effort, it made all that intense suffering make sense in the long run. It made it all worth it in the end. And so as we look at this text this morning, I want us to be reminded of two very important things that we need to hold tightly to as we face life in a broken world. And these are going to be our two main points. Number one, our sorrow will turn into joy. Our sorrow will turn into joy, point one. Why? Because, number two, Christ has overcome the world. So our sorrow will turn into joy because Christ has overcome the world. So let's look at that first point. Our sorrow will turn to joy. This is basically verses 16 to 24. You can imagine in the moment the disciples' confusion with Jesus' words in verse 16. Look at at what he says. Jesus comes to them and says, A a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. And so they're like, well, what are you talking about, Jesus? Are are we not going to see you? Are we going to see you? And you can imagine the confusion that's there. And he had just told them that he was leaving them, but it was for their own advantage because the helper would come. We talked about that last week. And now he tells the disciples that again in a little while you will see me. And verses 17 and 18 tell us that they were confused. And they say, We do not know what he's talking about. I appreciate just the the humanity that's dripping in this verse. I mean, he's he's talking to them and describing these things, and his disciples who have been with him for years, they're like, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. Some of y'all may be thinking that this morning as you're hearing the sermon, you're like, I have what is he talking about? What is this guy saying? In verse 19, Jesus knows that they're struggling with understanding what he meant. And, he, and notice, he doesn't chide them. He doesn't fuss at them. He offers them and us an explanation to help us understand the bigger picture. And look at verse 20. We see a common phrase that's used 25 times in John's Gospel. It's this little phrase, truly, truly. It's a, the double Aramaic word, amen, amen. And what it, what it means is, hey, listen carefully. Listen up. This matters. Truly, truly, I say to you. And look at what he says in verse 20 as he kind of highlights it and bolds it. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Remember, as we've looked throughout John's gospel, Jesus, when he refers to the world, quote unquote, he is referring to this entire system, this political and spiritual kind of system that's set that is hostile to God and hates Him. You know, and you have this contrast there. And this is the the world. Take heart, though; I've overcome the world. Although the world is pressing in. It's in league with Satan and his demons. And living on this side of the cross, we know that Jesus is referring to his death and burial. We have the ability to be able to read this text in light of the cross. But imagine, put yourselves in the shoes of the disciples when they hear this. And Jesus is just really laying this heaviness on them. And they're like, we would have no idea what he's talking about. He's Basically what he's doing, Jesus is letting his disciples know that very soon the enemies of God will rejoice and mock them. They don't know it yet, but actually the world outside that hates God is going to rejoice and shake its fist in victory. One of the greatest examples that I've seen seen of this is if you've ever seen the movie The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or if you've ever read that book by C.S. Lewis, there is a scene there where Aslan, the great lion, is bound to the stone table. And the, the witch is there and all of her followers, all of her little like demon followers are clapping. And she's, she has a knife in her hand and she's raising it and they all are rejoicing. Because the great lion has finally been captured and he's laid down on the stone table. And what Aslan had done is he had agreed to take the place of Edmund, who was a traitor. And he had said, no, I will lay down my life for the sake of Edmund. And what you see is you see this just the, the, the witch and all of her, her demon followers are clapping and they're rejoicing and they're taunting Aslan. And, and the witch raises the knife and she kills Aslan on the stone table and she exclaims, the great cat is dead. And everybody there just breaks out into applause. And they rejoice Meanwhile, the the other children look on in horror and bewilderment while they're hiding in the woods. You probably noticed and picked up that C.S. Lewis was very familiar with the crucifixion account. Very familiar with the biblical account. And you see that kind of baked in here. And throughout John's gospel, we've seen the enemies of Jesus trying to take him out on multiple occasions. And eventually they're going to succeed. Or at least they think they will. But none of this will happen outside the sovereign will of God. He's always at work, even when the world rejoices in its perceived victory. Basically, while the scoffers continue to scoff, the Savior continues to rescue and redeem. And that is good news for us this morning. And so let the world scoff. for while the world scoff, God is always at work. Always, always at work. The question this morning is, do you believe that? Do you really believe it, that God is always at work, even when the mocking voices are at their loudest, proclaiming the death of God and the futility of Christianity? They say, give that whole Jesus thing up. What are you doing? Do we really believe that God is always at work? Do we really believe this morning, do we believe that today, even when we hear our own voices among the scoffers? Or we feel the weight of our own sin and rebellion and against the God who created us. Do we really believe that God is always at work? As we've said before, God never promised a rose garden for His people in this life, but He has promised to walk with them and to give them a hope that cannot be shaken. As one of my seminary professors, Dr. Kelly, said, and I've mentioned this several times before, he says, Christians will face trials like everyone else, but will be able to bear up under them like no one else because of Christ. Christians will face trials like everyone else, but we'll be able to bear up underneath them like no one else because we have a Savior and we have the reality of this God who's always at work. He's always at work and we trust in that. You look around and your life may be full of sorrows right now, but I want you to take heart because those sorrows do not have the last word. And according to the words of Jesus, your sorrow will be turned into joy. I have no idea what that's going to feel like. I have no idea what it's like to live and walk a day in this world where I don't have some semblance of just sorrow or my own wreckage or anxiety. I have no idea what that's like. When Jesus says, no, take heart, your sorrow will turn to joy. But man, I can't wait to find out. It sounds great. Psalm 30 verses 4 and 5 says, Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And you see in verse 21, as Jesus is continuing to describe this, he uses the picture of a woman giving birth to help them understand this transformative joy that they are on the threshold of experiencing. Look at what he says in verse 21. Jesus said, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish For joy that a human being has been born into the world. You see this idea of just this transformational joy that makes all the sorrow and suffering worth it in the end. The pain and anguish of labor, they're transformed with the arrival of the baby. The suffering is replaced with irrepressible joy and love. I myself have not given birth, as you can imagine, but remember when the When that baby comes into existence, up until that point, it's just been like the idea of a baby. And all of a sudden, the the baby is born into the world, and you go, oh, that's a baby! Then you had no idea, prior to having children, I had no idea that I could love something so much, so instantaneously. Like, I would go and take a hundred bullets for this thing without even blinking. Just this transformative joy that's there. And I didn't even carry the baby in my own body. And it's just this instantaneous like, oh, I just love this little one tremendously. I'll do anything for it. Paul kind of also talks about this. this, this he, he again uses this idea of um, kind of uh, birth uh, in Romans 8, to 23. And he says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly, wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now when we've been reading through this text, did you happen to notice the massive promise at the end of verse 22? Huge promise at the end of verse 22. What does Jesus say? He says, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one, no one will take your joy from you. That is massive. Because think about what the disciples were about to experience. They were about to experience something tr- so transformative that, that would end all of their suffering. He says, guess what? The world is going to mock and scorn you for being associated with me. But there's a day coming when that joy No one will be able to snatch it. And what is the thing that makes that true? It is seeing the risen Christ when he walks out of the tomb. And it changes their life forever. This transformative, permanent, and lasting joy. Here's what Sproul said about verse 23. He said, In a very real sense, seminary ends the day one sees the resurrected Christ because there's nothing more to ask. It's enough to just marvel and worship. He says those, all those questions that we have, they're immediately transformed, and the, the days of learning are over, and the days of worship and joy are ahead. And you think about this text, and, and why should you care? Because if you're in Christ, this is your future hope too. Beholding the risen Christ. And our hearts being so full of love and worship that our joy will last forever. And we sing praises to the one who transformed us by his grace. From his sinful enemies to his beloved children. There's a great hymn, Love Divine, All Love's Excelling. And part of that hymn says, Change from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place. Till we cast our crowns before the Lost in wonder, love and praise. What a wonderful picture of heaven and eternity with the Lord. Yet until that time, I mean that sounds great, can't wait. Yet until that time though, there's another massive promise for us in verse 24. And that promise is we now have access to the Father through the name of Christ as we pray according to the Father's will and trust Him. And you think about the idea of prayer and how it matters here and how the gospel informs us. The gospel frees us from the need to pretend. We can come honestly before the Father and pour out our hearts before Him and know that He hears us because of the way that's been opened for us and secured by the death of His Son. It gives us the freedom and honesty because of being united to Christ where He says, you're mine and you're united to me. It gives us confidence but also humility as we go before the Lord in prayer. But it gives us the confidence that we need to come in. And gives us the confidence to go, you know what? I don't have my life altogether. I'm not okay. I'm not perfect. And I'm coming before you, O Lord, and I'm just laying my heart bare. And so, even as we struggle in this life, what are we called to do? We look to Christ. We continue to look, for Christ, to, look to Christ. But the question then becomes, Why? Why? As we saw in our first point, our suffering will be turned into joy. Our sadness will be turned into joy. But the question now is why? That's the second point. The second point, the the big why, is because Christ has overcome the world. Jesus knew that the cross was just around the corner and that the disciples still didn't fully grasp the weight of what was about to happen to and for them, and they were confused. And Jesus knew that the time was coming when every confusion would be lifted and it would be replaced by a renewed clarity, faithfulness, and joy. We see that in verses 25 and 26. Now, there's two Greek words that are used here in John's Gospel. The, the, the two Greek words for figures of speech, peroimae, Um, and tell you plainly, parasia, were used to set up a contrast between the present and the future. John knew what he was doing, and so we have this contrast between plain speaking and figures of speech that you see here. And everything that had been veiled will soon become crystal clear on the other side of the resurrection. We know that, reading that now in light of where we are, but the disciples didn't know that at the time. And Jesus said, but just wait a little while, Everything that is veiled and confusing to you suddenly will become crystal clear. Trust me. And so in the midst of this contrast there, what did they need to cling to and believe at this particular moment? Simply what's in verse 27, that Jesus is the Son of God. He said, that's what we're holding on to. We don't exactly know how all this is going to work out, but we do trust that, that you have come from God. You are who you say that you are. You are the Son of God. That's what they were clinging tightly to. In verse 30, they reaffirm their faith in Christ's deity after Jesus reminds them of God's love and his plans to return to the Father. And you think about how we stand in the here and now, we have the benefit today of a full and complete Bible. Think about the clarity that comes from the rest of the New Testament as Paul and others wrote and explained the far-reaching consequences of Christ's life and death and burial and bodily resurrection. I mean, we, we take that for granted, don't we? We take that so for granted, but can you, be, can you imagine being on the other side of the largest aha moment you could ever imagine? We take it for granted now as Paul and the rest of the apostles in the New Testament, they've written and they've kind of filled in the gaps here. Jesus is saying, hey, this resurrection is going to happen and all this is going to come to fruition. And now the apostles are like, hey, do you remember how that came to bay? And here's how it matters in your own life. Could you imagine being on the other side of the greatest aha moment you could ever imagine where Jesus is describing all this stuff? But he knows that in just a few days when he's resurrected the disciples are going to go, oh, oh, now I get it. Now it makes sense. I mean, I can't imagine being there in that moment. Imagine how they felt in that moment when they were huddled and afraid behind locked doors after Jesus had been killed and he had been put in the tomb. Imagine them all huddling behind locked doors and then all of a sudden Jesus shows up. I mean, just imagine what was going on there. In verse 32, Jesus knew that they would be afraid when the pressure mounted and that he would climb the hill all by himself to hang between heaven and earth to pay the penalty for sin and absorb the wrath of God. And he knew that they would scatter in the wake of his death and burial, yet Jesus still loved them and he loved them to the end. Verse 33, Jesus told them that all of these things that they would have so that they would have peace. And again, there's that word shalom. And that word shalom, the expression of peace, uh, had a much richer connotation than the English word does, since it conveys not merely the absence of conflict and turmoil, but also the notion of positive blessing, especially in terms of a right relationship with God. So what does it mean to have peace with God? It's not just the end of warfare. That's kind of what we think when we think peace. Shalom is much more and deeper than that. It is a kind of a deep-seated contentment. Because you know that you have a right relationship with God. That that enmity has been done away with. And you are just at peace. Your heart is at peace. The second half of verse 33 is just as relevant today as when Jesus first uttered it. Look at it in verse 33. The first half of the verse says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Again, there's that, uh, that deep-seated uh, uh, just rejoicing in a right relationship with God. But look at the second half. In the world, remember, this this entire system that hates God and is against Him. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Think about that promise that's there. And the Greek verb um, tharsete, translated take heart, is an imperative. So it's a take heart, do this, exclamation point. And it can also be translated, be of good courage or be of good cheer. If you have like, I think a King James does be of good cheer, take heart, be be courageous. It's a call to courage and joy. And so then we we think, why are Christians able to have joy even in the midst of intense suffering? How are we able to have joy when Jesus says, hey, the world, you're going to experience trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Why in the world are we able to have joy in the midst of that? Because we have a Savior who walked out of the tomb and He proved His power over the greatest fear that we could ever imagine with His death itself. And when that happened in real space and time, which it did, it changed absolutely everything. It changed everything. So much so that Paul said that if that resurrection didn't happen, we might as well pack this whole Christian thing up and go home. But because it has happened, it's changed everything. And it gives us hope in the meantime. The Greek verb nikao, translated I have overcome, is a word associated with victory in battle. It's used a lot in Revelation to describe Jesus conquering the enemies of God. He says, and I saw this rider on this white horse and he came in and he was conquering. And I saw Jesus, he comes and he conquers. It's the same verb that's used over and over again. It's always associated with victory in battle. It's also used to describe what Christians are able to do through and because of Christ. Again, Romans 8:35 to 39. Almost done, Hang with me. Paul wrote, "Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, "For your sake, we're being killed all the day long and we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered." No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. There's that same verb again. But when Paul uses it, he puts the little word huper in front of it, which means hyper. So we overwhelmingly conquer. We hyper conquer through him who loved us. Paul continues, for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what? So what? Christ has overcome and because we are united to him by faith we overcome with him and so when cancer threatens take heart when the world mocks and scorns take heart when you feel like sin has you by the throat take heart when your job outlook looks grim take heart When anxiety feels like a millstone around your neck, take heart. When you wonder if you can just make it one more day, take heart. When your kids drive you crazy, take heart. When something you're worried about just keeps you up all hours of the night as you're wrestling and you're worrying, take heart. When the money gets tight, take heart. As the hymn says, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Take heart. Why? Why? Because Jesus Christ has overcome the world. He is the solid rock on which we stand. And we can say, again, as another hymn says, it is well with our souls because Christ has overcome the world. And we rest in that and we trust in that. What it means is that sinners and messed up people like you and me can actually have hope. Even when the world around us looks like a World War II battlefield, we still can have hope because Christ has risen from the grave. And he's overcome the world. Kent Hughes told this story in his commentary on John, talking about R.A. Torrey. Here's what he wrote. He said, R.A. Torrey has given us a memorable testimony concerning the mysterious work of this transformation in his life. One of the greatest Bible teachers of the past generation, he pastored Moody Church and founded the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. When their 12-year-old daughter died of diphtheria, Torrey and his wife went through a time of great heartache. The funeral was held on a miserable, rainy day. And as they stood around her little grave and watched her body being buried, Mrs. Torrey said, I'm so glad Elizabeth is with the Lord and not in that box. But even knowing that, their hearts were broken. The next day, as Torrey was walking down the street, the misery came to him anew. He felt the loneliness and heartbreak that lay ahead, and in his misery he cried, Oh, Elizabeth, Elizabeth. Torrey would later write, And just then, this fountain, the Holy Spirit that I had in my heart, broke forth with such power as I think I had never experienced before. And it was the most joyful moment I had ever known in my life. Oh, how wonderful is the joy of the Holy Ghost. It is an unspeakably glorious thing to have your joy not in things about you, not even in your most dearly loved friends, but to have within you a fountain ever springing up, Springing up, springing up, always springing up, springing up under all circumstances into everlasting life. As Tari is saying in the wake of his 12-year-old daughter being put in the ground, he says, I had this spring that was in my heart, that even in the midst of that crushing circumstance, I still had joy. I still had hope because I had a risen Savior. Here's what Keddy said. He said, Sorrow can be turned to joy permanently for people who are discouraged and depressed, Christ is still the answer, and He alone is the answer to all the miseries of men. So the questions this morning are just a few. Is this your hope today? Is it? Where do you turn in the midst of your trials and suffering? Do you have a true and lasting hope beyond yourself? Do you trust and hope in Christ and Christ alone? Has your faith found a resting place? As Augustine said, Lord, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. We have this God-shaped hole in our hearts that is longing to be filled. And the question is, has your faith found a resting place this morning? Has your heart found a lasting hope? Look to Jesus. Don't look to yourself. Look to the one who has overcome the grave. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ as we trust him by faith. Ian Duguid said, Before his return, followers of Jesus should anticipate tribulation in this world, but the promise of overcoming stands because Jesus is the overcomer par excellence. Indeed, the theme of living as an overcomer must be anchored in the gospel of grace. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, that is, by placing our faith in the finished work of Christ and our union with Him. Overcoming is not something we do for Jesus it is something we do by Jesus. The Christian's hope can never fail because it's grounded in the faithfulness of God, in the finished work of Christ. It's not based or grounded on our own striving, and that's really good news. And that's the good news of the gospel. And so we think about this joy that we can have in the midst of intense persecution and suffering the question and all the promises that we've looked at this morning, the question that Jesus asked in verse 31 is the best place to end this morning. And that question is simply this. Do you now believe? Do you now believe? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that every bit of it's true. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. As we overcome, not because of anything that we have done, not because of any striving that we have done, we overcome because you have overcome. And we are grateful, O Lord, that that gives us hope in the midst of suffering, in the midst of a life that may look like a war-torn World War II battlefield. And we look out and we see the landscape and it just looks torn up. We're grateful that your grace will prevail as we have sung. Lord, we are grateful that our sorrow will be turned to joy. And we are grateful that you have overcome the world. And so help us, O Lord, by your spirit to take heart, to be of good courage, to be of good cheer as we wait for your return. And Lord, we pray that you would come quickly. But while you tarry, O Lord, give us the strength and faith that we need to press on day by day as we trust you. We ask and pray all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.